Welcome to Mosfino Please, the podcast, a podcast where I drink wine with my friends and we talk about it. Today is extra, extra special for me because it is my first time coming to you through your earbuds, through your headphones, through your speaker. Maybe you're in your car. Maybe you are listening to this while you go for a hot girl walk, whatever it may be. It's me coming to you, blessing your ears with some really fabulous wine content that you can't get anywhere else except my Substack. And to celebrate this fabulous first ever podcasting day, I am bringing to you a very special guest, my fabulous friend, Rachel, the founder and winemaker behind the incredibly elegant Say When Wines. I met Rachel last year when I shared one of her gorgeous experimental orange wines on TikTok and the internet loved her wine and single-handedly put orange wine talk on the map. Say When is making some of the most unique and elegant wines that capture a time and a place and a moment that go beyond the bottle. She and I had a blast recording this episode and I learned so much about her process and winemaking and I really hope you guys enjoy this very first episode of Mas Fino Please. Okay, so this wine that we are drinking, I actually picked this one specifically. So we're going to be drinking um, the Dawn, a white wine. It's actually like more of a skin contact from the neighborhood winery, aka Pally Wine Co. Oh, yeah. I know that Pally, <laughs> Pally is your vineyard neighbor, so I selected this one. Um, they gifted me, so they did like a selection of natural wines this spring, like five wines, mm-hmm. and they sent me a bunch of them, and I actually tried them when I went to Pally in downtown. Um, they invited me for a night to like try their wines and stuff like that, and they were all really, really nice, really good, so. Yeah, at the Arts District, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've been wanting to go there. Yeah, it's super cute. They do like, they have like a nice patio. I hope this one works. Sometimes the wine keys don't always. Oh, I have your wine key, by the way. Oh, from when? For my birthday. Oh, when perfect. You like. <laughs> so let me pour you a little. So yeah, this is like their skin contact. Um, but yeah, so this is, it's called Dawn. It is uh, Pinot Grigio Chardonnay, mostly Pinot Grigio. Um, but yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it definitely think. looks more pink, but. Yeah, it's it very like salmon-y. But I also really appreciate them because they're very sustainable. They are one of the uh, SIP certified vineyards Mm -hmm. that follows like the SIP certification, which I did like a small project with them last year when I was like first starting doing like TikToks and stuff like that. And so they were on my radar from that. Yeah, I didn't know they had um, another label called Neighborhood Winery. That's cool. I think Neighborhood is supposed to be like their more natural leaning, minimal Mm -hmm. intervention-y. Yeah, because I didn't actually know that they... I thought they were just, like, a sustainable wine brand or, like, producer, I guess, um, with, like, locations around California. But I didn't realize that... I didn't realize they were producing Mm -hmm. until, like, semi-recently. I just thought they were, like, a bar that curated and worked with vineyards. And then, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, because they have a cool model. We actually... um, they were actually like pretty close with them because not only do our wineries share a wall, so we have to go outside and then back around to go inside, but um, they've been making wine next door to us 
they've been our neighborhood winery uh, for like <laughs> since I started um, working in wine. The first place I ever interned at in 2007, which then I ended up working at full time, and now I make my wine there in Lompoc. They've been there, so watching them open, you know, Santa Barbara, Anaheim, Arts District, mm-hmm. and our goal is to have a tasting room that's a little bit more urban and in mm-hmm. the city. They, you know, connected me with their licensing people, their compliance people. Um, just very helpful and like, and I'm actually, um, they're making space for me to jump on their bottling truck at the end of the month. So my oh, two year releases, that's exciting. they're going to help me bottle. <laughs> so yeah, wow, we work yes, very closely. They, yeah. Oh my God. Cause I didn't realize it was so <laughs> in the family. It is very much a neighborhood winery for yeah. you. That's so cool. Okay. What do you think of this, this pick? I like it. It's really, it's really high and it's higher in acid than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Pinot Grigio and Chardonnay as two separate varietal wines um, and varieties, but I the the combo kind of works because it's I actually feel like the acidity is coming from the Chardonnay and that's just that's what I'm picking up. So yeah, mm. it's good. It's refreshing. Yeah, I'm not like I don't drink a lot of Pinot Grigio. I will on occasion like if somebody like serves it or like I guess it's just not a bottle or a grape that I'm familiar with and like shop for frequently and so I like it's not my like what I'm drawn to Mm -hmm. but yeah this is really nice and like like you said like very high acid Mm -hmm. and Pinot Gris I I don't know if this is actually a fact but to me I always think of Pinot Gris as like the OG orange wine Mm. because it's Mm -hmm. the only grape that's like not really a red not really a white like you know we do an orange wine that's a skin contact Grenache Blanc or you have you know a red wine that you're doing Pinot Noir but Pinot Gris is actually like a kind of a amber colored berry. And even if you were to go direct to press, you can make an orange wine out of it because it's orange in color. Right. It wouldn't it, is it also like a Blanc de Noir kind of? Um, Blanc de Noir, my understanding of Blanc de Noir is more like um, a white and a red, well, I guess a white and a red blend. So the Chardonnay is being a white, Pinot Gris is kind of like, I never know if Pinot Gris is actually a white wine or a red grape or a white grape. I think it's a, I think Pinot Grigio is like a blue-ish, gray-ish, white-ish, <laughs> right? Like it's, yeah, it's definitely like the third color yeah, of grape. Yeah, the third That's, color. <laughs> yeah, I always, because I thought, I thought Pinot Grigio was like usually like direct press where there was just like nose, like they just removed the skins, then no skin contact at all. So then it was kind of like a Blanc de Noir style because it was like a removing, red grape. Right. Like pressed to be a white yeah. immediately, yeah. But it's also like not traditionally a red grape, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what category it falls in, but it's a good. I think it's a good grape to use if you're going to do an an orange or skin contact or skin fermented wine. Mm. Yeah, and it also I was kind of expecting it to be like a bit more. Like I wonder if they did it in like steel barrel or something because it's mm-hmm. very like bright. Yeah, there's like no like, oak on it. Yeah, and so I was expecting it to be like a bit rounder and like maybe like more bold in that yeah sense. same because chardonnay can go that way i would think of like pinot gris as a roundness in here and chardonnays can be round you know very round profile too but in this i think the chardonnay was picked earlier to give it that acidity mm-hmm. mm. yeah okay so does it get your approval yes ten out of ten. <laughs> i approve <laughs> I would cool. drink this again. I would buy this. Okay, cool. I always get like kind of nervous where I'm like, okay, I'm going to present wine to people that like know way more than I do about it. So 
I hope they like it. <laughs>
party with it, (laughs) which is really fun. Yeah. Which, I mean, I guess weird parties, that's perfect. Perfect name for... Fun but different, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it's interesting, too, because... um, So in the natural wine community, like, I, I think weird parties is where people like see our wines that's like the one they gravitate to mo- like first because it has the fun label and the fun name and all that but um all of our wines have all, like always been minimal intervention like basically we only use sulfur and minimal parts as a preserving agent and only when we need to so even our wines that are more like traditional or classic in taste are made I I think almost more um, minimal intervention than our weird parties because like with weird parties we do a lot of like carbonic maceration and stuff and in that process you're sealing off the grapes to oxygen and letting them you know ferment whole berry for two weeks and I'm actually having to do a little bit more manipulation because it's not like grapes would naturally be like sealed off to oxygen like that Mm -hmm. and then you know so nothing's being added but I'm actually those kind of quote unquote, like more natty wines are actually more work. (laughs) That's what I was, yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's like, well, number one, all wine is, all wine is manipulated in some way because it doesn't make itself, right? Like Mm -hmm. there is some kind of like intervention happening (laughs) when you're taking the grape from the ground and turning it into wine. Yeah. But you can also let it hang in a bowl on your counter and it'll ferment and be alcoholic. I just don't know if you'll want to drink it. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And then also, like you said, with these carbonic wines, which I feel like are getting more popular right now, and especially in like the natural wine world, you hear carbonic like as a descriptor in natural wine. I feel like you don't hear it as often maybe in um, more traditional wines. They might still be carbonic, but I don't know that it's really like a selling point the way that they are using a natural wine. And that's just really interesting because, like you said, it actually requires a little bit more intervention yeah. in, in the cellar. Yeah, there's a little <laughs> bit more of a human element. But, but yeah, carbonic is something... Carbonic maceration, I think, does have like traditional and classic roots because, you know, Beaujolais, that's where like... That's where I think of carbonic wines really of mm-hmm. like coming out of, but... You know, I do know that I believe it's Lane Tanner in Santa Barbara County. I think she does carbonic maceration on her Pinot Noirs and always has since like the 90s, which probably like no one was paying attention to yeah. or calling it that or. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, OK, well, so I wanted to hear from you, like what inspired you? Because I know you have obviously you have you studied viticulture, right? Mm-hmm. And you've worked in wine for your whole career but what inspired you or what really like pushed you to start your own label and your own production yeah it was it was definitely not intentional I'll say that so I was working as an assistant winemaker at um another winery in Lompoc where I still now uh basically am an AP and make my own wine at but I was working for them as their assistant winemaker, and if you're not familiar, uh, assistant winemakers' jobs most of the time is basically to fulfill, you know, all of the duties that the winemaker delegates to you. So you are doing all of the hands-on physical winemaking, but you're not actually you don't have a full autonomy. You're not getting to make those decisions or those calls. Your your job is to see through the winemaker's vision, which you learn a lot by doing that. But it. You know, it started by me, you know, oh, I'm curious about this vineyard site or why don't we, why don't we make a Syrah or why don't we do, 
you know, um, whole cluster, and that just wasn't in their program at the winery I was working at at the time, and they had been around since the late 90s. They had their client base. They weren't interested in, you know, like changing it up. Like their customers mm-hmm. knew what to expect from them and liked what they did already, and that was their vision. So as soon as I started to kind of have these sparks of like wanting to try something new, they were very generous in being like, you know, if you want to make some wine here, you can. And initially it was more to fulfill curiosity and kind of, you know, I think the words I would use is a fun experiment, a side project, like, you know, a project wine. Mm -hmm. And so I made the wine, first barrel of wine in 2013, I sourced, um, I basically like sourced from my favorite vineyards the first year that they were sourcing from and kind of picked like pulled buckets from there, like basically a ton of fruit from a little bit of this vineyard, a little bit of this vineyard, and then made my own wine. And then, um, so I, I started Say When without realizing I was starting Say When. I just started it to do, to have a project. And um, at the time I was down in LA and I was visiting a friend and I met Mikel, who's now my husband and the other half of Say When. And he was like, you know, in LA, you don't meet very many winemakers. So he's like, I'm sorry, you do what now? Like, (laughs) what? And he started, as we started dating, he started to come up and help. And he was like, this is incredible. This is amazing. And that was maybe, the the wine was already in barrel, but I didn't have a website. I didn't have a mailing list. I didn't have any way to take orders. I really just thought I'd make a, you know, a barrel of wine and give it to friends and family. Like a table wine. Yeah. Kind of house wine. (laughs) (laughs) And then for fun, I, because the people I worked for already had a relationship with like reviewers, I just sent it in. Just, just, you know, like here's this fun project I did on the side. I'm just curious what people are going to think if I send it out. And I got like a a 90 or 91 or something. Oh my gosh. So at that point. That's (laughs) amazing. So I had people then being like, oh, how can I get the wine? And it really was Mikkel who came in and helped make my project into a business. Uh-huh. But I still, you know, wanted the job security and didn't feel confident enough to like, you know, leap out into the world on my own. And it took a few years of him really encouraging me to like make more, make different fruit than what I had been making before, different wines. And, um, kind of growing it in that really like natural kind of like bootstrap way of like so I think it was like year three or four and I was like I guess this is this is a business (laughs) and um I took the leap to uh basically quit my it's hard to do both um it was amazing when I was an assistant winemaker and had this project because my day job was doing something I love and Mm -hmm. my side job was doing something I love Mm -hmm. But it's hard to like, it would be hard to grow Say When fully um, while still working for them full time because the visions were so, so distinct. Right. Um, so in 20, when was it? 2017, I think. The first year we made the weird parties. I think 2017, we made like 750 cases. We went from oh like my gosh, that's 300 to like 750. <laughs> it was like a huge leap and we're like, okay, we're doing this. Um, so, and then made like seven different varietals. So that's kind of how Say When started. So Say When started in what year? 2014? 2013 was 2013. technically our first vintage. Um, and what, do you still produce the wine that you sent in? I I, I don't produce from the same vineyards. Um, 
it was primarily from Oben Vineyard in um, San Luis Obispo County, and they are no longer. Uh, it was a wine called Racy after my initials, and we still do a Racy Pinot Noir. I am, however, searching for a new site, so I'm looking for Santa Rita Hills. It's always been a Santa Rita Hills Pinot, mm. and actually one year it was Pali Estate Fruit. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so I'm just trying to find that right um, fit for for the label and the fruit because is, as of 2020, I believe, all of our vineyard sources were either non-certified organic, organic biodynamic, regenerative organic. Mm-hmm. And to have one skew that was like conventionally farmed and it was like one of my favorite wines, it just didn't seem right. to fit. That doesn't fit your, yeah, that's not really your vision or like yeah. the pillars of. Yeah, it's not in our ethos. And yeah. So um, I have a few spots in mind. Of course, it's all very, it's like always the most expensive, most premium fruit. So mm-hmm. I just have to kind of, I have to, you know, find the right match for it. But yes, that wine's still in our program. That's amazing. 91, what did you say? 90, 91? It was like 90 or 91 from Wine Spectator. That's really impressive. <laughs> like, that's so insane. <laughs> You're like, um, yeah, I was like, whatever, bored at work, and I made this. Like, try it. And they're like, 91. <laughs> and for those who don't know, wine can be uh, rated by, I don't even know, they're like judges, but I don't really know the process too well. But basically, having your wine rated 90 points or above is very good. 91 points is very, very good. And I think like, what's the highest they go? Like 98, 97? Uh, there's very few, there's, you can get a hundred point wine, but when you get a, if it but was, that's like a perfect, 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 perfect. Yeah. That's really, that'll start a cult following. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I know there's like two different, um, there were like two different, uh, like rating scales they use, right? Like there's wine enthusiasts. Yeah, the main ones that I know is um, Wine Spectator. Or Wine wine Spectator, that's what I meant. Wine Spectator, Wine Enthusiast, Wine Advocate, um, and then a few others of note are like Jeb Dunnick, um, Antonio Gloney, um, and then, you know, there's smaller ones, Connoisseur, I think it's called Connoisseur's Guide, um, Pinot Report, like, you know, if, if, a reviewer has a loyal following people will like buy blind just based off these Mm -hmm. people's reviews um but yeah it's it's an interest it really helped to get our name out there in in the beginning we actually don't submit our wines anymore Mm -hmm. because we make so little of you know 50 cases of this 25 cases of that but if it ends up on the list and then it sells out you'll sell it really quick (laughs) yeah and like usually yeah they usually review like at one point at one time during the year. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, we're reviewing Pinots in February. And it's like, okay, well, we're sold out of last year's Pinot. Our new Pinot's not coming out till August. So the timing doesn't align. Yeah. And, and we've been able to do just fine without it. But. Right, right. Hmm. So, okay, so you were working as the assistant winemaker. Mm-hmm. And you were living... In Lompoc. In Lompoc. And you were just, you just happened to be down here like visiting a friend. Yes. And then that's when you met Mikkel. Yes. Oh my gosh. So it was just fate. You <laughs> yeah. Were, that was like a long distance relationship then, in, like in the beginning. Yeah. That's so cool. So yeah, that you really like, everything was meant to be. <laughs> yeah. You were meant to come down here and meet him at a pizza place, you said. Yes. At Two Boots Pizza in Echo Park. <laughs> <laughs> so now we celebrate everything with pizza. I love that. Well, I mean, pizza, wine, pizza and wine are like the two number one combos ever like that's like all you need in life so it's perfect that's a perfect match (laughs) that's so cool okay so well okay wait so last 
week, I met your dad and he's so sweet. He's so kind. (laughs) And I asked him, I was like, has Rachel always been into wine? How did she get into wine? And he said, he said that you, so I guess wine was a really big part of your family's life and that like they really centered wine at the table. Meals were often paired with wine. Um, so do you think that's where your wine roots like really truly came from? Just like being exposed to it as a young teen or how yeah, old you were? Definitely. Yeah. It, it, I think it kind of started when my, uh, my dad and my stepmom met, got married. Um, so I was probably like 11 or 12 and they are both CPAs. So, and they both worked for the same firm. Um, Deloitte, which is one of the bigger accounting firms in the country. And uh, as you can imagine, two accountants at the table <laughs> who work for the same company, the the dinner conversation could be a little dull to a you know 13-year-old. But um, starting in high school, they were very, um, very intentional about, you know, we didn't do a lot of like family trips or anything, but um, most nights of the week, We would have dinner in the dining room with music. It would be an amazing meal that one of them cooked, dinner music, candlelight. And my dad would usually pull two to three bottles. It wouldn't mean two to three bottles were being drank, but he would pull what paired with the meal. And if that warranted three bottles, he was going to pull three bottles. And as long as I wasn't driving anywhere after, he'd like let me have a sip or something. Mm -hmm. And so for what is such a like type A kind of like, you know, very strict, I don't want to say sterile, but kind of like, you know, a a different kind of upbringing. Um, There was this piece of our life that was like, I don't know, almost like European and like Mm -hmm. romantic and like, you know, there was, there was conversation and music and, and, you know, we put our phones down and we actually like connected And I kind of thought of like wine as the glue to that whole scenario. And that's when I started thinking about wanting to get into wine. And my stepmom, who is insanely intelligent and incredibly practical, was like, I think you're caught up in the romance of it. Before you major in this in college, you need to experience working at a winery. And it was through her saying that, they basically like we're not going to support you in doing this in college unless you like actually like try it like we think you're just caught up in the romance so uh i interned at a winery for a summer and like first harvest oh and my was, like God. still loved as it. a teenager as an 18 year old so yeah. it, it started it, it started becoming a thing when i was 15 or 16 and then when i was talking about wanting to actually go to school for it they were like whoa, whoa wait you've never worked in a winery. How do you know you'll like this? That is, that's actually kind of insane because you were like probably one of the very few teenagers in your school and probably like around many miles (laughs) that were like well-versed in wine. Like you clearly were well-versed enough that you were like into it mm-hmm. and realized that you loved it and realized that this is like a path that you were interested in. Like, I think at least for me, like when I was a teenager, I was thinking like, I liked wine because I would try wine with my parents and I would try, try wine with my grandpa. But I was like, I just like wine and I'm going to drink it. 
and maybe I'll get buzzed and then I'll just like <laughs> go on and go out that night. Like I wasn't thinking like in that mindset of like, well, I want to produce this. Like that's yeah. a really like unique moment. I feel like in any teenager's path to mm-hmm. like really be like so aware. Well, when we're young, right? Like we don't think of like what we want to make when we're like 16 or 17 and we're supposed to pick our major for college the following year. Like we're mm-hmm. not thinking of like, the practical day-to-day aspects of what we want to do. Like, you know, you want to be a veterinarian or a lawyer. And, um, and that did kind of hit me later in life, like looking for jobs when I was approaching the end of college, you know, it's like, oh, wow. Like with wine, it's really going to dictate where I live. Like I loved the day-to-day working in wine, but I never thought of like, oh, that means I will probably have to not live in a city, which obviously I've managed to figure out a way to do. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. Did you grow up in California? I grew up in Orange County. In Orange County. Oh, okay. So it was like not quite wine country, but not like terribly far either. I mean, yeah. So Lompoc, um, my stepmom, part of what made this all possible was my stepmom, who was the one who encouraged me to go seek out a job at a winery. My grandparents live in Lompoc. So that, you know, I wouldn't have been privileged enough to be able to do it if I didn't have, like, I stayed with my grandparents for a summer and, you know, worked 15 minutes away. Mm -hmm. And even just to know, like, where a winery was. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, I don't think a lot of 18 year olds know Mm -hmm. what Lompoc, where or what Lompoc is if they're living in Orange County. It's like, you don't really know unless you're like, no wine. And my parents would go wine tasting. Like, basically I'd get dropped at my grandparents' house and they'd go wine tasting. Or as what my stepmom liked to say this weekend, as soon as you got your driver's license, you were our designated driver (laughs) while we went went wine tasting. So, and that, you know, they did help me like kind of come up with like who to, what are the wineries you want to like work at here's like they're we're on their mailing list here's a few people you should reach out to so they were definitely a big part of like kind of me wide-eyed and bushy-tailed like getting started and being like kind of hit with the reality stick of like oh okay and I just loved it and kept coming back I could have yeah it could have definitely gone the other direction yeah yeah that's so cool that's amazing yeah I didn't realize that it was like from such a young age I I feel like just in general, 18 year olds like don't really know what they want to do. And at least like I, so I really wanted to be in like restaurant, like the restaurant industry. And when I was applying to schools, I actually applied to Cal Poly Pomona, which has like a restaurant hotelier, um, like program. They also have like a craft beer and like, I don't know if it's viticulture, but they have a lot of agricultural yeah. um, programs there. And I ended up not going, that's what I thought I wanted to do my whole life. And then I ended up not going there. Um, and I ended up going to Boulder, which was like way different experience <laughs> and didn't have the opportunity to study things like agriculture or food restaurant business or food or, science. Yeah. yeah. They don't specialize in that at Boulder. So I totally changed like my idea and my path and I studied international affairs. And today I make TikToks and (laughs) (laughs) work at a nonprofit. So yeah, so it's just an interesting, it's really interesting to see that you were so like inspired and then so sure of what you wanted to do and like actually like saw that out. Cause I feel like at that age, there's so much going on and like, I loved restaurants. Like I loved like the idea of curating a menu Mm -hmm. and and food and just like restaurants in general. I worked in a restaurant when I was in high school and 
I thought it was fun, but the things I loved, like that's not running a business. Like restaurant menu building is not <laughs> running a restaurant. It's way the different. fun part, it's but the it's the not the part. whole part. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah. So I think like as kids were, we're inspired and maybe a little bit jaded. And then once we get into it, we're like, uh, I don't know. And so lots of people change their path, but for you, it was like, this is it. I love this it. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't until I'd say the, the part that I like least about it really didn't hit me until recently. And it's, it's the sales. Um, I love making wine. Um, I love pretty much all aspects, even the tedious ones. Um, you know, everyone says the worst job at a winery is working on the bottling line, but I do love bottling <laughs> because at the end you get this product that you made. Um, but it, it's the sales. And if, you know, if I'm doing a one-on-one in-person tasting, like, you know, like where I think I met you in person the first time, we had good, clean, fun, you know, that's kind of that same. Like, was that the first? No, we well, met one other time before that, but that was the first time we yeah. like hung out. I guess. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that scenario, that doesn't, you know, I was, I was there to do a, a you know, a, a takeover and a tasting flight, but that didn't feel like sales to me. That was like getting to connect with people who like were drinking our wine. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the cold, the cold, hard sale of like trying to get in places and, and kind of like trying to, I, I think I'm not very good at like selling myself. So this is the part of the podcast where you might hear a commercial or an advertisement. And if you are a brand and you would like to promote your product or your service or yourself, send me an email. Let's connect. Let's collaborate. As you know, this is a self-produced podcast and I am happy to provide space for your advertisements. Now, back to our show. Let's bring it back to your Piquette story. So you made, okay, so 2020, you made two different Piquettes. One of them made made it to the shelf. Yes, one of it made it to bottle. One of them bottle. You know, never even we never even pressed it because it was too far gone, and you could tell which was the Chardonnay, the Chardonnay. Yeah, okay. and then your part, your round two of that was the one with the weird parties, Greenwich Blanc. Yeah, which was lucky because like so Chardonnay is one of the earlier picks, so we might have picked that like early September, and then Grenache Blanc is like traditionally very very late ripening, so that would have been like mid October, like early to mid October. So that gave us the time to like take what we learned, you know, stew on it for a minute, and and you know, <laughs> work up the morale to try again. So that. Piquette was the over easy, over easy. Yes. Beautiful egg on the bottle. <laughs> very photographable. Very, <laughs> it, very Instagrammable. And when you gave me this bottle and you told me about it, you called it breakfast wine. You were like, this is breakfast wine. This is like a really great thing. Maybe with some eggs, we talked about like a, um, breakfast taco mm-hmm. wine pairing. Yeah, because it was four percent alcohol too, so it was like. Can you explain the concept of <laughs> breakfast wine for our listeners? Yes. Um, <laughs> so when I say breakfast wine, I am not a mimosa person. So if I'm going to Sunday brunch, I'm not going to get a mimosa. I will probably order a Radler if you're familiar, which is like mm-hmm. a beer 
I think it's a beer. It's kind of like grapefruity and sparkling and effervescent. Like a shandy? Yes. Okay. That's what I'll, that's my go-to because I'm, you know, I don't super like Bloody Marys. I, I do like a good one. Like if there's a really good Bloody Mary, I can have one, but I'm, you know, I'm not a Bloody Mary person. I'm not a mimosa person, but I just want something like a little bit lighter in flavor and alcohol and that won't make me feel bad. And so just the fact that it was lower in alcohol, lower in flavor, slightly effervescent, um, the name over easy became, was sparked by the fact that it was over easy. It was a 4% alcohol bottle of wine. Two people can drink that Mm -hmm. and it's over easy. (laughs) It's, you, you, you slug it back. It's, it goes down smooth. There's no sharp edges. It's just easy drinking, drinking, non-complicated, doesn't make you feel bad even if you're sharing a bottle with someone so we were like oh this is over easy and then obviously over easy lent itself to the egg label (laughs) um so it was kind of this i don't know if double entendre is the right you know double entendre implies something a little more sexual but you know what i mean like it was but it it had double meaning yeah two meanings Mm -hmm. um hence the the fried egg label on it um so yeah breakfast wine was born from this like have this at brunch have this take this to the park take this to the lake like this is your beer substitute this is your mimosa substitute yes breakfast wine (laughs) in case any of you are listening and have doubts about breakfast wine (laughs) breakfast wines are wines that are lower in alcohol brighter crisper easy drinking easy drinking help cut through really like rich breakfasty things like you could eat it with pancakes and it would it's light enough that it kind of just like doesn't phase the heavy sweet pancakeness but you could also pair it with a breakfast burrito or breakfast tacos or what are some other breakfast foods Mm. Shakshuka. Shakshuka. Oh, that would be so good with shakshuka. Oh my God, I'm excited for the red one with, with shakshuka. shakshuka. That yeah. would be really good. Yes. Shakshuka. This isn't your Monday morning breakfast no. wine. This is your Sunday at I'm 11 not, brunch wine. I'm not telling you to drink a 15% Cabernet Sauvignon <laughs> with your cereal before you go to work. I'm saying enjoy this really delicious, light, bright, fresh, crisp, Chuggable, low in sugar. Low in it was sugar. The OJ in mimosas that got me. Exactly. Yeah, I don't. I don't like mimosas either. I'm like super anti. I used to force myself because, like in college, there was like 99 cent mimosas on Sundays mm-hmm. at the local diner. But no, like it's like I also. Ugh, this is an unpopular opinion. I don't love champagne. <laughs> I like really have a hard time like finding a champagne that I'm like. Or like a sparkling white even, but like mostly like champagne wines, like that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I think it's like the really like brioche, honey yeah. kind of like flavors of traditional champagnes that I'm just like, eh. It just it also like I drink a lot of Andre back in the day, and so I'm <laughs> probably just like triggered by that. Yeah, yeah. But brioche is like a very like. 
when you said that, I knew exactly what you meant. Yeah, it's like bready. Yeah. Yeasty. Also Yeasty, sweet. Yeah, yeah. Like it's definitely sweet. And it's not to say like, I'm sure they're a great, I've had good champagnes. So I'm like, this is the moment to drink a champagne mm-hmm. and I am enjoying it. Yeah. With but, oysters or New Year's Eve yeah. or something. But yeah. like generally speaking, like I can have one glass and I'm fine. I don't need any more than that. And so for that reason, I don't like mimosas. And mm-hmm. also like, I just love like fresh squeezed orange juice and I do not want to like ruin my orange juice with like anything else. Like I'm a purist, like mm-hmm. I will pay $8 for a freshly squeezed orange juice right down the street at Wake and Lake, which is like obscene. Like I can't believe I spend that much money on orange juice, but when I'm really, really craving an orange juice, I'll go there mm-hmm. for it. And it's so expensive. I don't know why it's so expensive, but anyway, I love orange juice. So yeah, I hate to put like things in it. Just like I also love wine and I hate to put things in wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't put champagne and orange juice. Don't put orange juice and champagne. Mm-mm. Just leave them separate. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, that's over easy is the substitute for the non-mimosa drinker like Yes. <laughs> yes. So when you're looking for something refreshing, yeah. grab an over easy. Yeah. Pour yourself a glass. <laughs> we it's sound like delicious. an infomercial. Yeah. <laughs> I really love a piquette um, for multiple reasons. One, because I think they're delicious and they're refreshing and they're super fun. Um, but also, I just like love the idea of them being like a lower waste byproduct of winemaking. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just like a really cool way to like maximize as winemakers to like maximize your production by reusing without making as much waste. Right. Mm-hmm. Because typically wineries will then dump all the skins, um, of the grapes that they've you know already turned into juice and you can still do something with that. Like yeah. we can still it's a like, byproduct keep, of wine that yeah. then becomes, you know, and, and I think that's why you see a lot of smaller producers doing it. It's, it's riskier, but like, again, you've already made the initial wine. You're not buying fruit just to make paquette. Right. And um, I think paquettes became really popular kind of due to the pandemic, the same way all of these like lower alcohol or no alcohol beverages came about. People are at home and they're drinking more and they, Mm -hmm. they want substitutes. So I think that's actually a big part of their popularity in the moment Mm -hmm. right now. Is there a shorter turnaround time in making, like in producing a piquette than maybe a more traditional wine? Yeah. So we bottled ours because you're bottling it during the primary fermentation. So we bottled ours in November and we're just, you know, honestly, small business. We're just waiting on labels. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) the wines are bottled and ready to go. As soon as we have labels, they will be out in the world in another week or two. Um, but yeah, the turnover is much faster. Yeah. Yeah. I love, yeah. I love a piquette. I love like all the new ways that winemakers are really like evolving wine because, you know, wine was always like one process, one, one kind of like version of itself to the public at least. Um, and now you're seeing things like Piquette, you're seeing things like fruit wine, which are all examples of winemakers adapting to 
whatever the environment is giving them at the moment. Mm -hmm. So like fruit wines are like definitely at least what I'm noticing a response to like climate change. Absolutely. Um, Just having access to different types of fruits when, you know, frost might affect or mold or mold, not mold, but mildew and different things like that are affecting your grapes. Um, Or even fires. I have to wonder if a certain amount of these, you know, grape, apple, co-ferments from 2020 vintage, I'm I'm assuming Mm -hmm. it was to... I'm assuming a lot of that fruit was not usable, but if they could get by with yeah. using a little bit that had less smoke taint and you can, you know, blend in some apples and actually have a product to sell. Totally. Like, you know, it, it is sustainable. Supporting smaller businesses that are, you know, is, is a sustainable way to, you know, you don't want these industries to crumble. Yeah. No, definitely. I, I went to a... Um, I went to a wine tasting at Heaven's Market a couple weeks ago, and it they had um, Stagier wines and um, um, Mountain. Oh my gosh, Mountain Mountain Misery. Why is it? I'm like blanking on their name. Anyway, I went to uh, I went to Heaven's Market, and I went to a wine tasting there, and the wine the producers that were there were talking about that, talking about how um, a lot of producers are turning to apple wine and fruit wine and co-ferments because of the fires and also because a lot of especially in northern california there's a lot of abandoned um orchards Mm -hmm. that are producing fruit and you can essentially get apples for free so it's a really great way to like when it's also like difficult to get grapes because of different environmental factors and smoke taint and things like that and so it's creating another opportunity for them to essentially salvage the vintage mm-hmm. for Use for themselves, not being yeah, used. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It's really interesting just to see the way that winemakers are really like making it happen. It's it's cool. It's like it was a little bit pessimistic listening to like their their talk about it because they're really like in the trenches and they're really like experiment experiencing like the difficult side like to me I'm like that's so inspiring that you're using like (laughs) apples but they're like no we like literally don't have a fucking choice because (laughs) everything was frozen or everything got burned or whatever or smoke taint so yeah but they were yeah their 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 resilience to these types of things I think are really important because like you said you don't want a whole industry to disappear because of something that's like not in their control like at all or for it to basically knock out all the small producers and yeah. leave only the larger ones yeah. that that do have the resources to sustain hits like fires and you know frost right. and, and and that um, that was actually something that I learned through that uh, conversation, which I found really interesting. Is that I mean, it's obviously yeah, the smaller producers are going to have a lot harder time sustaining themselves. the The larger producers they can just like file like an insurance claim on like a lot of stuff. And that's just like, it's like, I I get like, I don't know, I guess I never thought of it that way. And that's just like so crazy because there's a lot of people who don't have access to that and who can't do that. And like, this is their whole life. Yeah. Yeah. Like technically we have insurance, but I, you know, to have a team that's dedicated to like legal or insurance that can like file those claims and know how to do that. Like, you know, even that, you know, those few barrels that I dumped because they were too far gone. Mm-hmm. I, I, there might've been a way to file a claim, but it's like, what is the energy and time of what I'm, what right. I'm actually going to get from that? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, it's, uh, you want the, the small producers to stick around in any industry. Like, that's, smaller producers are what push change and push forward motion. Mm-hmm. And um, not to go off on a tang- tangent again, but uh, I was listening to a, another podcast I love is How I Built This. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how... Um, I'm sure at least our generation remembers the economic crisis of 2007, 2008, and how it was actually an amazing time of innovation because so many people were laid off or had no options and their backs were against a wall Mm -hmm. that they had to pivot, they had to figure out what to do. And I think that a lot of um, innovation is going to be like a silver lining of this pandemic. Yeah of people becoming creators or starting their own businesses or doing something because they were laid off because their industry basically like ceased to exist because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and same for winemakers, like when we're working with natural resources and they're being depleted and your back's against the wall, Mm -hmm. what, what are you going to do if not pivot and, or hopefully end like, it really pushed us to uh, kind of, in, you know, incorporate that more in our ethos of, like, who are we working with? Right. How are we making these wines? What are our inputs or outputs? Yeah. I think you can really see that in the wines that you are creating because, I mean, like, not only is it a incredible wine, but you're also really weaving in, like, this fantastic element of storytelling that I think is not found very often in winemaking. I feel like your, your wines take you just like out of the bottle beyond the bottle. There's like more to them. And I think that's something that that also really attracted me to your wines and to your brand is that it's like, it's more than what's in the bottle and what's in the bottle is excellent, but also like you care about the people that you're working with to help you produce the wines, the people who are farming, you really, really care about farming practices. I know we've spoken about like you like looking for like sustainable, sustainably grown um, grapes and also just like even in your branding, like you're telling stories (laughs) through the branding, like through the labels that it's kind of like, if you know, you know, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but it's all an inside joke. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it's amazing. Like, I think that's so cool just to see, like, it's so thoughtful. And also like, I think that's something that's just like, probably just a characteristic of you. Cause I noticed it also, like when I went to your home, like everything is so thoughtful, like everything is so like intentional and you can really see that in your wine too. Like everything that you create is like, it's like, there's a reason why this label is looks like this. There's a reason why you, the the name, like the Pinot that you guys have, um, the when, yeah, when there were three. Yeah, so it's it's the label is called When, and so each year it's sorry when there was a, you know when they woke up and had plans to meet later that day is our wedding. Aww. When there wasn't <laughs> enough room at the table for three. Um, the new one coming out is when they walked around the block and decided to stay. It, it's all, it's basically like we've thought of when as a chapter in our life. So we like take a moment and then condense it down to this like very simple story so that, um, you know, 
other people can look you know go to a wine shop and see that bottle on the shelf and be like oh my god like we're literally doing this right now like we you know couldn't figure out where to go to dinner we walked around the block we found this wine shop when we walked around the block and decided to stay and you know picked this bottle of wine and decided to get takeout at home because we couldn't get a reservation that night like mm-hmm. that's what we want yeah and and that story when they walked around the block and decided to stay is actually based off of that year you know last year we bought our house mm-hmm. and um one thing a friend of mine who had just bought it's our first house and and a friend of mine who had just gone through the same process six months earlier said gave me very good advice is like go to the neighborhood at multiple times of the day the morning the middle of the day late at night and we have a dog and walk the dog around make sure you feel safe walking Mm -hmm. the dog make sure you like the like the neighborhood noises the neighbors who are out and about like walk around the neighborhood and just like Make sure you feel like this is where I belong, and and that's the um, line. But also, like we want it to mean multiple things for other people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and that's like from the vintage that you is that vintage from that is twenty twenty twenty, I believe twenty twenty. Yeah, so like it's hard. The vintages are weird. I'm all, I can never remember what year it is because I, you know, I made we're in twenty twenty two. I just finished making twenty twenty one. The twenty twenty one is in barrel. I'm selling the 2020, but it's 2022. Like yeah. I never, I'm like always three years behind. No, so. I, yeah, I love that. That's, yeah, that's a really special thing that you guys are doing so well, like honestly. And and the labels, like the weird party labels. I love that they're photographs that you've taken. Mm-hmm. Always a film photo. A film photo at a weird party. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing more like, self-explanatory than <laughs> yeah. like seeing a chaos post party and like being like, that was a weird party. Yeah. <laughs> and then it fits the wine and mm-hmm. that's a fun wine to have at a yeah. weird party. Yeah, absolutely. That's <laughs> the, that's the goal is like, yeah, to be, like I said in the beginning, when we were talking about, you know, wine kind of being the glue to like interweave all these stories or these like relationships or like literally that's how we met is through wine. Wine was the glue and like, you know, we just want to be part of, we just hope that our wine like improves and makes your night. Like, you know, it'd be great if like someone takes a beat to be like, oh wow, this, this one's really good. But for the most part, we just want to be a part of the evening that Mm -hmm. just like makes for a really great night. Just at the table. Yeah. At the table. I love that. Okay. Well, are you ready for a rapid fire? Maybe. (laughs) It's really easy. It's easy. It's fun. Okay. Okay, celebrity-owned wine. Love them or hate them? Hate them. (laughs) Sorry, hate them. (laughs) Okay. Mary, fuck, kill. Cab Franc, Greenwich Blanc, Syrah. Oh my God, can I marry them all? (laughs) Mary, fuck, kill. Oh. Um... Mm, Mary Cab Franc and Fat Grenache Blanc and Syrah. I'm sorry, I can't kill any of those because those are like three of some of my favorite varietals. Who would you share a bottle of wine with? Alive or not alive? Who would I share a bottle of wine with? Um, probably uh, Fred who is my grandfather, who was not into wine at all, but um, I drive his truck 
uh, still to this day. And, and every time I pull up to a vineyard in, um, his stick shift Tacoma from like 2015, 2010, I just feel like, um, I just feel like I've had so many like great stories working in wine in his truck mm-hmm. that I could share with him. And he, he always drank my wine and like said he loved it. Who knows? But, um, <laughs> yeah, probably him. Hmm. Beautiful. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. All right. Amazing. <laughs> Thank that you. That was easier than I thought. <laughs> Yay. Thank you so much for, for joining. That, yeah. that, that means a lot. Yeah, I'm excited. Great. I'm excited to like, Oh my God, you guys, that concludes the very first episode of the Moss Fino Please podcast. My name is Andrea, and if you love this episode, please tell me you do. (laughs) Please leave a comment. Be sure to share this with your wine-loving friends or your friends who don't know anything about wine and want to learn about it. This is a podcast for everyone who has some kind of interest in the wine world. This episode will be available on other podcasting websites in a couple of weeks, but for now, it is exclusive to my Substack, straight to your email. If you would like to follow along, please be sure to subscribe to my Mosfino Please newsletter and podcast using Substack. You will get episodes first straight to your inbox. Thanks, and I love you.